Good morning and welcome to True Talk. This is your host, Sama Jarrah. Stay with us. We're going to be having a very interesting conversation. Listen to this m- music from Algeria. Rashid Taha Yarayeh. Welcome back to True Talk. This is your host, Samar Jarrah. Uh, we're going to be uh, going uh, outside the U.S. and talk about the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, by calling Dr. Hatem uh, Bazian. Uh, so we're going to be doing some technical um, uh, maneuvering until I do that. Uh, please uh, stay tuned. We're going to be talking about the Ukraine and the media coverage, but not from like talking why they're doing this or labeling uh, journalists uh, like this and that. No, we're going to be really uh, trying to dissect uh, and uh, speak a different language. It's a different language that we can use while talking about current events. And you might be surprised that we're going to be using old terms like colonization, like racism, uh, like uh, many different uh, things. Uh, but um, I want you to bear with me and wait until... Um, okay, Dr. Hatem is heading to the hotel now. And um, I need like a few minutes. So uh, we can talk about the other issue uh, that uh, we want to talk with him about. Let me know when I'm 
trying to multitask here. Okay, uh, many of you, I'm sure, have seen the uh, hearings at the Congress. And uh, for me to uh, watch it um, as... Um, you know, and a woman and as a Palestinian and as a Muslim and as an American, I do have a f- different way of looking at what is going on. I honestly have never heard of Ketenji before and I have not followed many uh, hearings before uh, for Supreme Judges, except, of course, with the last uh, two and also uh, with... Um, with uh, uh, Clarence Thomas. I had just moved to the U.S. and my husband was absolutely obsessed with uh, watching it. And uh, I thought, you know, um, this is is, is surreal. I can't even understand what is going on. Uh, And, um, you know, for me uh, to be uh, looking at um, discussions of... Um, sexual stuff and thing. It was really, really uh, shocking. So I want to talk about that and take take your input. But before we do that, I have to take a very quick, quick break and make sure I can get Dr. Hatem on the phone. This is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. Please stay with us and listen to Rashid Taha Yarayah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm 
morning again and welcome to True Talk. We are trying to figure out uh, the uh, complications of uh, technology, but uh, hold on. I'm trying again uh, to reach uh, Professor Hatim Bazian. Are you there, Professor? Yes, I can hear you from my computer audio. Can you speak again? Uh, yes, let me just put the... Com Okay. Be, try that. Uh, one more time. Can you say something? Yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> Salam alaikum too. I'm trying to see how we are connected through the computer. Figure out which outlet it is. Uh, so bear with me. I can hear you fine from my computer, and I have connected my computer to the... Maybe you can try that. 
she should be here soon. Yeah, just a second. I don't have pain. Okay, can okay, you hear, can me, you hear me, now? me now? I can hear you very clearly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We have an echo. Yeah, but you have an echo in my ear. I was trying to figure out how to deal with this. Um, Complications, but I was just saying uh, that uh, Dr. Hatem Bezian. Can you hear me now, Dr. Hatem? Yeah, I can hear you. I hear you clearly. Yeah, but yeah, I hear I an echo in my ear. We're trying to figure out this. Uh, but uh, Dr. Hatem, I was just our learning our listeners. You are a professor, uh, a lecturer at Berkeley University. You're the founder of the Islamophobia. Program. You're also, You're also founder, founder of the Zaytuna Institute. Institute, and and, um, <clears throat> and um, let me see. We have some issues here. We have two computers working. Yeah. yeah. So, so Professor, so you're also author of many books, but I was, I was trying, trying to figure out what is what happening is in Ukraine from a different perspective. perspective. So, for so instance, for instance uh, we were talking about certain journalists saying that, um, you know, these are uh, blonde people, uh, they have they blue have eyes. eyes, we had journalists saying this is not the Middle East, these are not are Syrian not refugees. So, so one can, can easily, Professor, say that these are racist, racist people, people or they are they ignorant, ignorant or actually, or actually some people even <laughs> from Europe were telling me that um, this is this really is not meant for the Arab audience. They're trying to get the Europeans, the Western Europeans to be sympathetic to the Eastern European, that this is a Europe issue. This is a Europe problem that, for instance, Europeans who are in the West, they think differently of Europeans in the East and therefore might not be sympathetic to the Ukrainian people when they are invaded. However, if you look at theoretical frameworks, and I know because uh, I, I listen to you all the time, you have a different way of explaining current events. And this might be rooted in the past. Uh, how would you, as a professor, as somebody who have studied uh, racism, uh, different cultures, North and South relations, how would you explain the reaction by the media, by the sports world, by everybody to what is going on in the Ukraine? Um, I, well, first, thank you for uh, having me and uh, sorry for the time, uh, uh, time difference. Uh, am I able to speak? Should I continue? Yes, yes, or? please. Yes. Yeah. So thank you for having me. When we look and examine uh, media coverage and uh, political figures uh, speaking on the Ukraine, uh, they immediately shifted into using 
racial distinction. So again, if uh, individuals in the West are speaking about trying to create commonality with Eastern Europe, I don't think anybody would have a difficulty saying, you know, Western Europe should welcome Eastern Europeans because there's been a migration from Eastern Europe to Western Europe uh, for quite some time. And uh, in this sense, this would not be uh, something that is uh, outside the norm. But what was uh, distinctively striking is that the media began to immediately make a distinction or a binary uh, between uh, the immigrants, refugees from the global south, uh, Syria, Iraq, uh, uh, Libya, uh, Senegal, and so on, and uh, the uh, refugees coming from Ukraine. And therefore, they introduced uh, almost a knee-jerk reaction, introducing race and racism as a way uh, to view world uh, unfolding events. In this sense, we have to go back to uh, Franz Fanon's work uh, on the wretched of the earth and also uh, his work on race, racism in terms of uh, uh, black-based white mass. W.D. Dubois, um, Edward Said, in order to actually say that these uh, frames of binaries between the global south and uh, Europe, these are entrenched. Not only that they operated in uh, the global north, but even when the uh, colonial powers of the global north went to the global south, they also introduced this binary of uh, uh, the human and the subhuman, the uh, highly praised human beings versus those who constantly have been erased. And as such, this discourse is not to be seen as an exception, but rather, uh, than, rather than being the norm. Uh, so you'll have like somebody who's actually saying that they're trying to be careful uh, while literally swimming in the uh, what I call racism atmospheric ecosystem uh, and reproducing these uh, uh, normative and well-rehearsed uh, racist tropes that have been with us for quite a long, long time. Uh, so uh, while the war, anytime that you have a war, anytime you have refugees, anytime you have immigrants that are fleeing as a result of war, one has to have empathy uh, with them. But in here, what we have that empathy toward whiteness has a distinctive shape and character than empathy to the identity of an immigrant refugee that comes from the global south. So that's one part. The second is that there is a uh, the double standard that immediately came out to the fore uh, in relations to uh, uh, the discussions about the uh, refugees from the Ukraine. Uh, Europe today, as we speak, uh, and here we're talking about uh, Spain, Italy, uh, France, uh, UK, Netherlands, Belgium, and you name it. We have uh, thousands of refugees from the global south, uh, from Afghanistan, from Yemen, from Syria, Iraq, Libya, Senegal, um, Ethiopia. Uh, they are actually literally being held in uh, camps, uh, 
And even using cabs is a, it's really a stretch. They are imprisoned uh, detention uh, centers. Uh, some of them have been there for three, four uh, years without having any possibility of uh, an out of that, uh, of those circumstances. And these are individuals that have committed no crime. And if anything, their uh, arrival into Europe was a direct outcome of European intervention in their own countries. Uh, so while Europe right now is almost jumping proactively, and may I say rightly so and should be the case anytime that a human being is suffering, while simultaneously holding thousands of these uh, immigrants, refugees uh, from the global south in these uh, prisons, detention camps across, uh, without any possibility of normalizing uh, their presence uh, and their existence in Europe. So that becomes a glaring uh, contradiction uh, because Europe is uh, putting forth this issue that they are responding within the uh, guidelines of uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the uh, treaties on the protection of refugees, uh, uh, even activating or speaking of international law and the four Geneva Convention, while all these uh, seems to be put in uh, a, uh, a, frozen, a frozen gelato uh, a a fridge in many parts of Europe when it comes to refugees, immigrants of the global south. So that's how I, at least in looking at both the coverage and the political statements that are coming out, uh, making the statement saying that these are highly prized uh, refugees or uh, immigrants. Uh, these are of high quality. These are middle class. These are educated. These are blonde hair, blue eyes. All this, uh, uh, it is actually uh, introducing the racial epistemic into it rather than being just that the Western world is attempting to create a sense of identification uh, with these uh, refugees. Actually, Actually uh, Professor, I thank you so much, but I want to go back to it, but I just want uh, to remind our listeners we are talking to Dr. Hatim Bazian, who is also, among his credentials, is the co-founder and professor of Islamic law and theology at Zaytuna College, the first accredited Muslim liberal arts college in the USA that deals with uh, religious studies. Uh, Dr. Hatem, uh, from the coverage also, we saw that, for instance, uh, the, uh, the authorities would not let Algerians, Moroccan students, Jordanian students, uh, students who have dark skin from, like, entering into Poland, for example, because, uh, for example, because they're going to fly to Jordan. It's not that these are students who got stuck. Now, the question, the million-dollar question, I know you mentioned in your writings, for instance, about the uh, journalist Dagata, and there is a couple of journalists, and one of them was even on Al Jazeera, which is affiliated with the Arab world, and it's in uh, in the heart of the Arab world. But where does this racism come? I mean, I, can, I cannot label these people as racist, because when, when they were talking, they were talking as if 
they were they were they grew up like that they went to school that taught them that the south or the darker is a lesser civilized like they were talking about civilization and saying for instance that this has never happened to europe what kind of amnesia do they have but it's not amnesia i think one has if i may say that if we read edward said's work orientalism uh, he comes up, or he at least has the issue, the notion of latent Orientalism and manifest Orientalism. And he built his theory in terms of Orientalism, which uh, you could also see it in the work of Fanon and others, uh, on uh, the psychological aspect, which is the subconscious uh, having a tremendous impact on the conscious. Uh, so Freud's uh, psychoanalysis of trying to actually go deeper into the subconscious in order to understand uh, how people actually function in the world, uh, in the conscious. You need to understand what is that map that is deeply, deeply ingrained within. So when Edward Said was talking about latent Orientalism, I will stretch it to say what we're dealing with is latent racism. You don't have to say to somebody that you are racist to understand that the topography, the mosaic that have constructed their personhood and their worldview is rooted in a latent racism that it becomes a second nature. And that's what I say, that racism is atmospheric. In the same way that you breathe oxygen, racism is breathed within the society, and you are dealing with layers and layers and layers of it uh, in such a way that becomes what you call an instinctive response, an instinctive engagement. And you always go back to this latent aspect to explain the world. So the world becomes explained between the civilized and uncivilized. So when the God says that these are civilized, he actually is reflecting this atmospheric racism by deciphering the world in relations to the hardware or the uh, mainframe software that is there. And the mainframe software in Western society, Western ways of knowing, Western ways of understanding is that the world is the is divided into a binary, the civilized and civilized, the savage versus the uh, the civilized person, the human, the subhuman, the lighter skin, the darker skin, right? The uh, uh, violence being pathological violence is uh, used to bring in civilization, right? All these frames becomes the way that are uh, uh, that events uh, are being articulated. Now, look at uh, uh, one of the reporters. We said that this is unheard of in Europe, that this violence. Mm -hmm. And again, you have to actually uh, have the framework that violence and uh, genocide is only something that happens in the other sector, that happens in the uncivilized which means that you actually don't even understand your own history because your history is actually uh, structured progressively uh, in such a way that even those instances of massive violence that took place in Europe are completely erased, uh, or you have what you call uh, a, mental, a mental lobotomy, 
in order for somebody to actually stand up with a straight face in the camera and says this is unheard of. Uh, we had such an intense violence in Europe that they had to have what you call, what I call the Super Bowl of violence, World War One, World War Two, and then move into the second, the genocide of the Bosnians, which actually was in the heart of Europe, 1992 to 1995, 300,000 uh, Bosnians were put to uh, genocide, 60,000 women were raped, uh, including the, uh, the uh, massacre genocide in Srebrenica, which was actually being, gov being protected supposedly as an enclave by the United Nations forces. So what we need to understand is that it's not sufficient for us to say this person is racist and this person is racist. We need to actually be able to critique the structures of knowledge that produces the atmosphere that makes individuals utter these statements and they think that they're actually contributing something positive. You know, the God, when he was saying, he thinks that he's actually being sensitive and contributing to an intellectual discourse rather than uttering, uh, literally, uh, 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 like he's uttering a toxic waste uh, that hitting the shore of our mental capacities in such a way that is polluting further uh, our ability to decipher uh, information, to decipher events without having to constantly uh, answer or respond to these racist statements. So, Professor, so, professor one, one can, can say, say maybe... maybe uh, uh, one can, One can say, say that, that uh, maybe, maybe they, they forgot, forgot World War I and, and World War II. But, but Bosnia was very recent, recent and the, what happened there and, and the massacres. So, so they recent from, from curriculum in the schools, schools or is it the media or is it a combination, a combination of all? Uh, well, again, uh, you, it's a complete erasure of every element where Western discourse is seen to be uh, entrenched and rooted in a, a violent discourse. So you, not only that you have to actually erase Bosnia, but on the same week that the Russians invaded uh, Ukraine, uh, we have the French deploying troops in Mali, which again is an illegal uh, uh, troops deployment uh, by the French in Mali. We have the United States bombing <laughs> Somalia, uh, bombing Somalia, and we have uh, uh, operations of drone operations so on so many countries. So uh, in this sense, what we have is almost a, a parallel universe, the universe that exists in Western exceptionalism and the universe that belongs to the uncivilized, the darker complexion parts of the world, which basically violence is in essence seen as a therapy to them in order to birth them into civilization. That even we need to kill you, but at least we are killing you in order to bring you into civilization. And as such, you have to have a complete erasure of the history as well as the contemporary, uh, contemporary period. Right? So these statements of uh, uh, defending civilization, that these are civilized and so on, while simultaneously looking at war and destruction that have been visited upon uh, the Arab and Muslim world. And I think one of the most uh, pressing aspects is that the United States is charging uh, the so uh, Russia with war crimes and aggression against a sovereign state and never stopping for the United States for a minute to actually think that they actually invaded uh, Iraq, which we're right now on the anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq and the passing of uh, mm -hmm. 
uh, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who, with a straight face, looked at the camera of 60 Minutes with Leslie Stahl, and when asked about whether half a million uh, Iraqi children dying as a result of the sanctions, asked if the price is worth it, a straight face uh, saying that the price is worth it. And rather than apologize for uh, this statement and recognizing the wrong, for almost, uh, you know, from nine, from two from 2000 all the way up to 2020, clearly mm -hmm. 20 years of attempting to defame, to project uh, uh, problems on 60 Minutes, to have been misspoken. And then lastly, she actually apologized in 2020 in a New York Times uh, uh, interview for saying stupid uh, statement, not that the policy is stupid yeah. or the policy is wrong or the policy is a crime, is that she actually, the statement is stupid. And that was taken as an apology. It's not an apology. It's misspeaking is different than actually saying that the policy was wrong, that the genocide that the Iraqis uh, children have faced was wrong, that the U.S. policy was wrong. None of that whatsoever. And now, as you see in the past, uh, the past mm -hmm. 24 hours, it's been like uh, the same to Madeleine Albright. And basically, we're going to be sanctifying her. Uh, because she was the first woman to occupy the Secretary of State position, but in essence with no difference or no distinction. So you have what you call this celebration of white feminist arrival at a seat of power, but doing the same thing as a white man. So what is the progress in this notion uh, would be the apt question to be asked in relations to uh, Madeleine Albright and the death and destruction has been visited on Iraq. Uh, are you hearing me, doctor? Yes, I am. Okay, perfect. Because uh, I know we have so much to cover, but because you uh, come from a Palestinian background, and I do as well, uh, I was really fascinated by uh, every uh, Tom, Dick and Harry telling people how to do Molotov cocktails. Like imagine if, for instance, I tweeted a tweet and said, hey, by the way, look at how Ukrainians who have been invaded and are occupied now, just like the Palestinians, let's say in the West Bank, let's say in Gaza, let's say in East Jerusalem only, uh, these people are under military occupation, which is recognized by nation states and the UN international law. And this is how you can do a Molotov cocktail. What would happen to me? Again, I know that you keep saying that there is a, a binary and there is a, everything can be explained through the concept of colonization. But in the minds of people, colonization has ended. How can we keep talking about these events using, like you keep saying, different language? For instance, let's lo look at resistance. All of a sudden, resistance is okay. How can you uh, address that? Well, not only that. I, I think many of us who are uh, active and engaged in, on the question of uh, and the struggle of Palestine, uh, not only that you cannot speak of resistance, that you can't actually lend any support, but you can, you post a certain statement on social media and you immediately, your social uh, media account gets blo uh, blocked. Uh, we saw that in the last uh, April, May period when Israel uh, pummeled Gaza and uh, parts of uh, uh, the refugee camps. Uh, that uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Reddit, Twitch, all of these engaged uh, in systematic 
suppression of Palestinian uh, speaking on the issue, uh, putting uh, facts about what is under what is taking place, while on the opposite, allowing almost Israel a free hand uh, to continue to demonize the Palestinians in so many different ways. Now we see that uh, Facebook, Twitter, and the rest of them are proactively participating uh, in uh, the uh, Ukrainian resistance against the Russians, uh, having uh, a complete uh, uh, toolkit for how to uh, do Molotov cocktail, uh, also guidelines of how to attack a Russian tank, where are the weak points. More importantly, as the Russian invaded Ukraine, uh, there was a, ra a rallying of support where 16,000, give or take, uh, volunteers uh, from all over, including ex-U.S. military personnel that volunteered uh, to go to uh, Ukraine. Uh, compare this to the Palestinians where uh, Israel, the United States, as well as Europe and increasingly Muslim Zionists uh, deny the Palestinian, the agency on the right, uh, to resist their settler colonial occupier. Uh, in parts of the world, you cannot lend any financial support for the Palestinians, especially for us here in the United States and uh, Western Europe. You are subject uh, to legal uh, sanctions under the guise of material support. And for those who followed some of the legal cases in the United States, Holy Land Foundation and others. So it's not only that the United States and Europe are neutral, they're actually proactively uh, restricting the Palestinians from engaging in any form of resistance uh, in the United States also to, to, give to people. A person who actually sang uh, songs uh, of uh, um, celebrating Palestinian resistance and calling on people by his singing uh, to donate and support Palestine was actually tagged with material support. So not only that you can speak of Molotov cocktail, you can speak of uh, any type of uh, challenge to Israeli military power, which comes predominantly from the United States and Western powers that uh, add to it, you can't uh, donate, but you can't even sing. Mm -hmm. Singing is actually uh, a form of uh, uh, supporting Palestinians is subject to material support sanctions. So the, the, I don't speak of the Western world being neutral. The Western world is complicit and uh, uh, act with duplicity when it comes to Palestine. So whenever these diplomats from the West from the United States and Europe uh, come to the Palestinians, my recommendation is the best you could do is just run up to the hills, take your knafa hummus and fool and just run from there. At least you don't have to put up with the duplicity and complicity and you have to read, read and listen to all these uh, lies that often are put at the table of the Palestinians, uh, promising them that there will be uh, Ease, but most often they're actually coming to provide ease for Israel to continue its unabated uh, settler colonial punishment of an indigenous Palestinian population. So what the Ukraine 
what the Russian invasion of the Ukraine just actually opened this double standard, uh, this uh, clear-cut uh, delineation between uh, when the Western world wants to support and wants to express uh, solidarity and affinity with a struggle versus when the struggle is often uh, and constantly being united. Having said that, I would have to say that the West is consistent in constantly standing against the rights of people in the global South. To liberate Meaning themselves. The to liberate For liberation. So That's why face. they will never support yeah. any liberal movement, yeah. liberation so, so movement. They've been, so they've been consistent, consistent. They've been consistent. They were standing against the South African liberation movement all the way up to the last minute of the anti-apartheid movement, the United States and Western Europe were still in bed with the South Africa apartheid regime. They're against Latin American freedom movement, whether it's in El Salvador, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Guatemala, Colombia, and so on. And uh, they definitely have been uh, in the forefront of opposing uh, Muslim uh, and Arab liberation struggles throughout and also in Asia in relations to some of the liberation struggles in there. So in this sense, while we actually can point to their double standard complicity, uh, speaking of what you call the high arcing values of international law, uh, but let's just be very clear that the primary violators of international law are the five permanent powers, uh, United States being uh, number one, uh, Great Britain, uh, I always say, alhamdulillah, is no longer great. Mm-hmm. Uh, France, uh, Russia, and then China. Uh, so these are the five permanent powers. And Russia is part of the Western world. So mm-hmm. let's not be uh, what you call deluding ourselves. It's a conflict within Western discourse rather than outside of it. China is the only one outside of the realm of the Western Eurocentric trajectory of violation of international law. I'm glad you mentioned that, Professor, because uh, I don't want listeners to think that we are in any shape or form pro the Russian invasion. (coughs) It's uh, especially us being Palestinians also. Uh, We condemn any uh, inhumanity uh, and any bombing of (coughs) uh, civilians. Uh, However, uh, it does not mean that we cannot highlight what is going on. And I just want to remind our listeners we're talking to Professor Hatim Bazian. Uh, He's a co-founder and professor of Islamic Law and Theology at Zaytuna College. Uh, he is also a senior lecturer at Berkeley and I think you are the founder of Islamophobia Studies. And mentioning that, uh, let me just remind our listeners they can send the questions to dj at wmnf.org dj at wmnf.org We have like uh, nine or ten minutes to go and I'm really concerned about the Muslims who live for instance in Poland because I think, uh, I'm not sure if it was the Secretary of State or the Prime Minister, somebody from Poland said, <coughs> I mean, so bluntly, no well, uh, Muslim again, refugees, uh, yeah. so so casually. Yeah, but actually, one my colleagues who uh, work on the uh, European Islamophobia report, uh, uh, Poland has a very, very distinctive Islamophobic uh, discourse because trying to define oneself to be part of Western civilization Again, Gandhi said it would be a good idea. Uh, you define yourself as part of the Western by uh, over, almost going overboard in expressing uh, your Islamophobia. So uh, Poland, which has a very minute uh, Muslim population, uh, has an intense <coughs> Islamophobic discourse in trying to define themselves as being part of 
Western uh, society. Uh, the same type of uh, discussion, same type of framing, we see it in Spain, where in the Spanish parliament that we will take refugees from Ukraine, but not a single Muslim. We see it in relations to France in the discussions uh, uh, leading up to this presidential election with Eric Zomor, who's likewise speaking about these are high quality immigrants and we might be able to get um, these individuals to reshape the racial uh, structure within the society. So what we are witnessing is that Islamophobia is never far away uh, from this uh, discourse because it's rooted on one, the clash of civilization. Uh, that is that thesis that still, uh, you know, it's a clash of ignorance. It's a clash of uh, absurdity, but nevertheless, uh, people still believe and act upon it. And then the second or curly to it is this notion of replacement theory, meaning that these Muslims, Arabs, refugees from uh, uh, Africa and parts of Asia are coming to replace the white race. And in doing so, both in the clash of civilization and the replacement theory, it actually shifts the topography from the West being perpetrators of the crimes that results in this massive flight of immigrants and refugees to actually putting themselves as the victims of this supposed insidious uh, uh, strategy that is coming out from the global south. But aren't so they also, this, sorry to interrupt, uh, Professor, yeah. but aren't they saying that George Soros and uh, the Jews are behind that? And it is really rooted in anti-Semitism. And we know what did uh, Europe did to the Jews uh, when they had uh, a religious problem called the Jews. Well, they, 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 they run through anti-Semitism. But in here, the, the work on anti-Semitism tend to use Soros as the... Uh, as the focal point for that expression, while making him being the key figure mm -hmm. in mobilizing the global South and simultaneously expressing affinity and adoption of Israel as a way to clear up their supposed anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. uh, so in this sense, they try to create a, uh, a box uh, on the one hand where anti-Semitism and Islamophobia could be stuffed into it mm -hmm. in a uh, what you call this uh, global type of uh, campaign to undermine the white society, white Christian uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon society, uh, while simultaneously expressing support for Israel as a way to show that we are uh, trying Not to strengthen Israel because it's standing against this uh, barbarians at the gates of civilization. Uh, not to not to say that racists are uh, consistent in their logic. Uh, I don't want to be accusing them of actually getting an A plus in their uh, you know test on logic. But the fact that they have an illogical, uh, contradictory position does not mean that people ra don't rally to their support. And they have been very effective in rallying and using fear and stoking fear. Uh, and creating white victimhood as a way to try to uh, shape this anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, uh, anti-Jewish in relations to anti-Semitism and pausing that the West needed really needed to strengthen mm -hmm. itself against this hordes of people that are coming against our, our society. So it actually gets people to uh, be, be whipped out of shape and mobilize for an extreme 
extreme right-wing political uh, parties rising as the protectors uh, of Western society. Uh, I want to shift to a name that you had mentioned twice, uh, Fanon, F-A-N-O-N. France Fanon. France Fanon. Uh, sorry, I mispronounced it. Yeah, and, that's okay. And uh, I really went uh, to uh, his uh, books. He passed away uh, very young, I think at age 36 from leukemia. And I think it was in the 19, early 1960s. But I want mm-hmm. uh, I want to, we have like five minutes, Professor, and I know it's a loaded question, but w- from me who came to this country 32 years, years ago, I found myself that there is so much knowledge out there that, for instance, where I grew up in five different Arab countries, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, uh, Egypt, uh, and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. Anyways, um, there is an erasure of all knowledge that is not Western. And I'm glad you mentioned Fanon, Fanon, uh, if you yeah. want to address that, especially that, for instance, if you have been following the Congress and the hearings uh, with uh, Judge uh, Ketenja, uh, they even yeah. uh, make it a point not to be able to pronounce her name and critical race theory. Uh, I know oh, I yes. am, it is, it's very loaded, but, but can't yeah. the yeah. people see that there is only one knowledge out there and it's a colonial knowledge and there is no space, for instance, Ibn al-Haytham or, or wealth maybe even from Africa, wealth of knowledge from... Yeah. Uh, can you address that? I know you know what I'm trying well, to... Well, yeah, well, uh, it's a long subject. I but know, in general, we have like four the minutes. World, the, the world we are living in is a Eurocentric world all knowledge that is used, all knowledge that is allowed to have representation and presence is the Eurocentric knowledge, which is rooted on the experiences and uh, historical trajectory of uh, uh, Western uh, Europe. So, uh, so when we say man, mankind, mankind as a statement references the white man in Europe as the archetypal uh, white man. When we speak about philosophy, we're speaking about Western philosophy. We speak about history. History is also Eurocentric. So in the background of this, the attempt to try to get other epistemological structures, other ways of knowing, uh, is completely facing this uh, almost mountaintop of ignorance and mountaintop of resistance because it's again is being shared that allowing ourselves to actually examine a different history implies a loss of power. Now, interesting in here, you will find individuals who are critical of uh, critical race theory. They say, we don't want to have people uh, having identity politics. Again, alhamdulillah, thank you for such an enormous contribution in knowledge. But that statement itself implies that there is a, a non identity politics that is there, meaning that whiteness, which is the fallback standard for everything, is an identity. So on the, on the one hand, those who are saying we should not teach black history, we should not teach this, we should not teach this, what they are asserting is that the only history that is to be taught is the, is the uh, progressively uh, constructed history of whiteness as it relates to unfolding history from uh, 1492 to the present. And any disruption of this results in the victimization of whiteness as an ideological concept concept in the society. Uh, Now, 
I would say some valid critiques of uh, aspects of critical race theory is that it's acceptable. Any theory is subject to what you call to dynamics of critique and engagement. But at the core of it, in essence, is that there is only one identity that have to have firmness. And that's, again, Huntington and We are running uh, out of time, uh, Professor. Say that, yeah, Huntington and Blackstone say that America is a white, Christian Anglo-Saxon settler society. Okay. So that's when we talk about critical race theory. That's what they are attempting to preserve. Thank you so much, Professor. Maintain. Thank you. I don't Thank mean you. to interrupt you, but we're running out of time. This is WMNF Tampa. NPR News is next.